Good morning, Veritas Church. How are we doing today? Good. Good. Uh, my name is Jordan Howell, if we haven't met yet. I am a college ministry pastor at Veritas in Cedar Rapids, and I will say, it's a joy to be with you this morning, but I also come with a, with a heavy text. And so um, I want to be mindful of, and I want to honor the parents that have littles in the room. As we just dig into Revelation today, there's going to be stuff in here that is at best rated PG-13. I mean, I'm reading in the book of Judges right now, and it's like, you come to find out the Bible has some real adult stuff. Uh, and one of the challenges, but one of the beauties of teaching through a book of the Bible is that we're going to let the Bible be the Bible. We're not going to just skip over a text because it's hard or because it has difficult language. Uh, but I do just want to be mindful of you. And so you have a warning on the front end that there is some offensive stuff in the text. And so here's your out. You know, if you have kids under second grade, we do offer kids in the back. But if you have littles in the room that are not ready to have this conversation, here's your out. I will not be offended. But you might be if you stay in here. So, uh, we good there? Everybody on the same page say, yep. Love it. All right. Now that you know that today is uh, going deep, I will say I typically love to laugh. I'm a lighthearted guy. Today is not a laughing, lighthearted text, and so I don't want to be tone deaf as we open up to Revelation. I want my tone to match the tone of the author here, and so we're going to be in Revelation 17, and a lot of what we're talking about today is, I want to just use one word quick, appetite. Obviously, appetite is more than just our physical diet. We're talking our spiritual appetite. But when I hear the word appetite, what comes to mind is, of course, food. Now, part of my story is I grew up wrestling from the age of three. I mean, as soon as I could walk, I started wrestling. I wrestled all the way through freshman year of college. And one unique thing about the sport of wrestling is it requires you to weigh in, to step on a scale, to manage your weight, and as you get more into advanced wrestling, there's this thing called cutting weight. Anybody familiar? Cutting weight? Okay. Uh, there's this thing with cutting weight that, when done right, makes you stronger as a pound-for-pound wrestler. But when done poorly, actually just creates really toxic relationship with food and drink. And part of my story is that for four years of my life, I struggled with eating disorders, both anorexia and bulimia. This like taking food and distorting it and twisting it and saying, okay, food rather than fuel for my body as like a human essential has now become either a reward to gain or an evil to avoid. It's sickening to take this like gift from God and distort it and make it all about me. And though I don't still struggle with these eating disorders, I think there's lingering effects in my life today. When I sit down at a dinner table and I have to think through, okay, Jordan, this is not a reward. And nor is it an evil to avoid. And honestly, I feel like every time I sit at a dinner table, I am just flirting with temptation. But what am I supposed to do? I can't just not eat, right? Like, I have to continue to eat, but what I can't do is let the food overtake me. I can't let the food be all about me. And I don't 
know your story with food, but I think you can actually kind of relate to this. And here's what I mean. Jesus gives us two illustrations. Number one, in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you are to be a light in the darkness. And then in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he prays to God the Father and says, Father, let your disciples know that they are not of this world, but keep them in the world. And so you have this dynamic of we're a light in the darkness. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. And then the question, just like me with food, is how do you be a light in the darkness, but not be overcome by it? Or how do you live in the world, but not become of the world? Because I just got to say, there are a lot of things that are competing for your worship, for your spiritual appetite. And the question we want to ask today is, how do we resist and overcome the allure of worldliness? How do we resist and overcome the allure of worldliness? So we're going to be in Revelation 17. If you have a physical Bible, today is a great day for you to have that in front of you. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's not on the screen that I just want to point out and help you see in this text. But as I said earlier, we're working through this book of Revelation. We're actually in week 11. And so if you are new here today, I just want to say welcome. Like, I'm so glad you're here. You're jumping in towards the end of a book study. And so there are things that we may be talking about that are confusing. I just ask that you stick with us. I'll try and explain as best as I can. But the Apostle John has written this book, Revelation, to the early church around AD 95, who is suffering immensely. I mean, to the point of being killed for their faith. And he writes this text primarily for their endurance. He wants to remind them that God is sovereign, God is in control, that their suffering is not in vain, that Jesus is going to win, and that once and for all, evil will be done away with. But there's two things that make Revelation really hard to understand. The first is it's apocalyptic literature, meaning there's a ton of signs and symbols, and we have to do the hard work to say, what does this even mean? But the second challenge is that it's filled with Old Testament references. And if you're anything like me, you are not an Old Testament scholar, right? Today's culture, the most biblically illiterate culture the American church has ever seen. And so as we jump into this text, it's no wonder sometimes we're confused with all the signs and symbols and Old Testament references, our heads are spinning. But I'm hoping we can make sense of Genesis 17 and 18 today. The heading of Genesis 17, or sorry, Revelation 17, is showing you where we're heading. And my heading says, the great prostitute in the beast. Yeah, it's weighty. And this imagery of a prostitute is meant to be disgusting. Like it's meant to stir this like unsettled emotion. It's meant to make us uncomfortable. And I was talking with a friend of mine last week who said he came across this in his weekly reading. He said, it made me want to take a bath. I said, yeah, that's kind of the point of this imagery here. And so we're going we're gonna to try and figure out who are the great prostitute and the beast and what does it mean for us today? We're going to start in Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. 
the word of God says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewel and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Wow. Okay, two characters here in the plot. We already talked, the great prostitute and the beast. The first that we want to unpack here is who is the beast? And if you were with us a few weeks ago, we were at Casino Farms, we looked at Revelation 12 and 13, and we were able to say, hey, the beast is actually the government in their day and age. This perverted political sphere which we were able to see looking back at Daniel 7 was prophesied all the way back then. And in Daniel, it was Babylon. But to the original audience, the beast was Rome. And actually, as we look at today's text too, it's pretty clear to say they understood that the beast was a perverted Roman empire. There's actually one verse here in chapter 17 verse 9, which would make this clear. It says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And what you need to know about Rome is it's geographically seated amongst seven mountains. So the original audience looking at this text knows clearly, okay, the beast is the Roman empire. But as we said three weeks ago, and as we'll say today, the perverted political sphere did not end with the Roman empire, did it? There's still perverted empires today that are abusing their power to squash the Christian faith. They're all around us. So it did not end with Rome. It continues on today. But what I want to talk more about today is the great prostitute. We've already talked about the beast. I want to talk about who is the great prostitute. Well, the good news is the text tells us, verse 5, Babylon the great And a couple things we need to know about this prostitute and Babylon language. First is that the prostitute language is not new here at the end of our Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, prophets would time and time again use this imagery to talk about a prostitute or a bride. And actually, as we look at Revelation 17, what I can't do today, because some of you want to watch the Hawkeye women's game is I can't preach Revelation 19, which talks about the bride of Christ. And so you see this contrast between a bride and a prostitute. The bride are the faithful, those who have been faithful to God. And in the Old Testament, when Israel was really faithful to God, this imagery of a bride, pure and blameless before God. But when Israel would turn their back and go after false gods, false idols... 
she would be identified as an adulteress, seen to be participating in this prostitution. Second thing you need to know, Babylon, much like Rome, is not limited to a political sphere, is not limited to just one empire. And we taught through Genesis in the fall, and our first encounter with the mindset of Babylon is in Genesis 11. Maybe you remember it. God had given this command to his people. He says, hey, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But here's what God's people had done. It says, they said, this is Genesis 11, verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That is a Babylon mindset. It is this self-indulged, self-exalting mindset. And it does not end with an empire. Actually, we know from today's text, in the first couple verses, talking about this prostitute is seated on many waters. That is an allusion to the fact that this worldliness, this self-centered, self-glorifying worldliness is pervasive. It's impacting peoples and nations. Every country, every culture, every government is being impacted by the allure of worldliness. And here's what I know to be true, Veritas. Babylon is appealing. Worldliness is attractive. I mean, in this text, to see the kings of the earth have just been swooned to participate in worldliness. I mean, John himself who is writing scripture, the inspired word of God, in verse 6 says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. He looks at worldliness and he is attracted. I mean, an angel has to come to him in verse 7 and say, why do you marvel? Like, get your eyes off of the world. Worldliness is attractive. But think about the illustration just for a minute. That what was meant for covenant, this bride and bridegroom marriage language, where you're meant to have sexual intimacy, yes, but alongside of marital covenant, is now just being twisted and distorted and is being offered to you at a cost to say, hey, come have pleasure. Just for a moment, it's fleeting, but come have the pleasure, but leave everything of the covenant aside. That is what is being presented to us in worldliness. And church, I just have to say, this is a much bigger issue than we think it is. A much bigger issue than we think it is. And though I think there's certainly something to be said of a contemporary church that says, hey, we're not, you know, suited up every Sunday coming in here. I love that I can wear jeans to church. Don't get me wrong. But this modern day contemporary cool Christian subculture that just begs the question, are we fitting in too much? Are we fitting in too much? And I think there's several things that we actually need to have our consciences seared by. When I think about this prostitute versus bride or covenant language, the thing that comes to mind for me is idolatry. I mean, that was the biggest issue 
in the Old Testament, when Israel would turn her back on God, it was a result of idolatry. And we often think, oh, I don't have wooden statues that I bow down to. I don't participate in idolatry. But idolatry is putting anything on the throne instead of God. Anything, even good things, end up on the throne of our hearts. And so let me just ask you, when you think about where you find pleasure or where you find rest, where do you go? Do you go to the world or do you go to God? Do you go to food? Do you go to drink? Do you think about all-inclusive vacations? Is your idea of a restful weekend just sitting on the couch, watching your favorite show, scrolling on your cell phone? Because here's what scripture says. This is covenant. Psalm 1611, you, God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We're settling. We're settling for lesser things, things that satisfy us for a moment when God actually has what lasts. Or you think about where you find your purpose or your security. Again, another allure of the world to offer you something temporary, to find your purpose in a sport you play, a school you go to, an occupation you work, or maybe the amount of hours you work. You can't help but tell people how busy you are because that's tied to your identity. Or maybe your security is wrapped up in the income you make, the possessions you own, your investment accounts. And again, it's temporary, it's fleeting. And here's what scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. This is great identity and purpose language. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That will last. That is meant to be your purpose, to know God and to make him known. Or how about this for security? Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That is security that will last. So one of the many pleas of this text is stop settling for the prostitute of worldliness to enjoy the covenant you have with Christ. To look to him for your pleasure, your rest, your purpose, your security. And I'm not saying that all of these good things are inherently bad, but I am saying they make a terrible God. And the question we need to ask is, do you have them or do they have you? That is pretty telling when it comes to idolatry. And if that's not convicting enough, it is for me. When you look at this text in Revelation 17 and 18, there are three clear ways that we are warned about becoming drunk on the world or participating in the prostitution of worldliness. I just want to point them out to us quick. The first is a focus on self. A focus on self. Revelation 17, 5. Babylon the Great. Like this name, Babylon the Great. She is known by her greatness. And in chapter 18, verse 7, it says that she glorified herself. The language she uses is, 
I sit as a queen. I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. It's all about me, me, me. And this is not just out there in the culture. It's in here in the church. We see it in consumer culture in the church to say, what does this church have to offer me? What can they give me? Do their preferences meet my preferences? I love this church as long as they like don't press into my life, as long as they don't challenge me on sin. Because the second they do that, I can go somewhere else. I mean, 45%, statistically speaking, 45% of regular church attenders have never volunteered in their local church. That's problematic. When I see in scripture time and time again that you are meant to be a member of the body, you are meant to participate in the building up of the body of Christ, to have never volunteered in the church. Maybe this is most convicting, okay? You might say, oh, I'm not selfish. I'm not self-made. Studies show that 85% of Christians in a typical church do not have much of a prayer life. Ouch. And when you think about self-made, self-glorifying, self-sustaining, it is a prayerless life. To have this posture like Babylon in chapter 18, verse 7, which gives no consideration to your need for God. That's convicting. Okay, here's the second one. Sexual immorality. You don't have to look very hard in Revelation 17 and 18 to see those words repeated time and time again. 17, 2, 17, 4, 18, 3, 18, 9, the list goes on and on. Sexual immorality. And it does not just exist in our culture, church. It exists in here. Statistics say that just shy of 70% of church-going men watch pornography on a regular basis. Just shy of 70%. And I will say, women are not off the hook. Rates are rapidly increasing amongst women as well. And relatively new research from Pew Research says that more than half of Christians, just shy of 60% in America, say that casual sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship is either sometimes or always acceptable. That's problematic. To just say our sexual ethic inside the church does not look any different than the world around us. And lastly, the love of money. The love of money. We see it repeated also in chapter 17 and 18. 17, 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, which in their day and age was like marked of royalty, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. By the time you get to 18.3, you see luxurious living. 18.7, living in luxury. 18.9, living in luxury. This constant theme and thread of not just having money, but being obsessed with luxury and the love of money. And church, this is a problem. To say that one-third of regular church attendees gave little or no money to the furthering of the mission of their local church over the last calendar year. Meanwhile, we're really concerned about the mods we can make to our trucks, getting the newest iPhone, or maybe building up an extravagant home. I mean, we live in a day of 
vacation houses. This is in the church. The average donation by adults who attend United States Protestant churches is about $17 a week. I meet weekly with people that spend more money on Starbucks than they've ever given to the local church. Ouch. And we don't talk about money all the time here. If this is your first time, I just want to say, this is not a normal like, hey, come to church, give us all your money. We are letting the text be the text. And we are saying, hey, money in and of itself, not a bad thing. But the question is, do you have money or does your money have you? Because in Revelation earlier in our sermon series, we heard about this church in Laodicea who said, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And yet God says to them, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Though they had all the wealth in the world, they didn't have God. And he's saying, you don't know true wealth. Though these things look appealing, Veritas, this self-made life, the allure of sexual immorality, the love of money, they look good, but Babylon works for the devil. Babylon works for the devil. It is all a mark of deceit and destruction. This is his game plan from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3, to deceive and destroy you. Maybe you've heard this quote before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I'll say that again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That is absolutely true. And we know how these things end because we have the end of Revelation 17. The text says this, beginning in verse 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. You see evil, even self-destructing in our text. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. This is language from Ezekiel 16. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw of the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is where worldliness ends up. Destroyed. And not just destroyed, but destroyed quickly. The, one of the quotes that I see time and time again in our text is, one hour, that's in 17.12, it's in 18.8, a single day, 18.10, a single hour, 18.17, a single hour, 18.19, a single hour. Destruction comes quick. I mean, we saw that all on Friday, didn't we? A tornado shows up, boom, in a moment. Wealth can be gone out the window. How much more when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes and says, I'm going to enact justice. That worldliness will burn up in an instant, everything gone. But I want you to see a couple things here. In verse 14, it says, the lamb 
will conquer them. Meaning, Jesus lasts. He is lasting. And who is he bringing with him? Those who are called and chosen and faithful. But this is, this is a little bit of a word nerd here, okay? Will conquer is a singular verb, meaning Jesus alone does the conquering and he's just bringing us along to watch it happen. That is so cool that Jesus is gonna win. And get this, verse 17, God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose until the words of God are fulfilled that all along this way, who is in control? God, he is sovereign. He is in control and he will win. But destruction is coming. It's evident. And by the time we get to chapter 18, we're getting Jeremiah 51 language, talking about Babylon's fall. And we don't have time to talk through all of it, but I want to point out a few things for us as we just look at some of the outcome or the result of the fall of Babylon, this destruction of the world in Revelation 18. Okay, this chapter is bookended by warnings of judgment. The first three verses and the last four verses are very evident. Judgment is happening. But we've done this in previous weeks. I want to look at two different responses to judgment. One from the righteous. What do God's people say? And one from the people who are not of the family of God. What's happening with them? So we're going to look first at the people of God. In verse 4, The word of God says this, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That is Tower of Babel language, right? Her sins are stacked as high as the heaven, and here is the command for you, church, come out of Babylon. Come out, do not participate in worldliness. It is a command, but it's also an invitation. I think that's beautiful to say, hey, destruction is coming, and here is your chance, people of God. Here is your chance. Get out before destruction comes. Get out. And here's what we know to be true as we continue to read in Revelation. By the time you get to Revelation 22, it's not just that you're leaving Babylon. You are going into a better city, the new Jerusalem. New heavens and new earth. It's not just come out of Babylon. It's no, go to your home. Go where you belong. New Jerusalem with God forever. But this command cannot be ignored. And what we've seen happen time and time again is that sin that once was avoided became tolerated and now today becomes celebrated inside the church. And so we need to have a heightened warning to say, what sin are we tolerating that our children or the next generation of church behind us will one day celebrate. We must stop tolerating sin inside the church. Look at this, verse 20. Another explanation of the people of God. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. When destruction comes, the people of God are worshiping. And if you're saying, how does that happen? I would encourage you, go listen to last week's message. Like, how can we worship a God of wrath and a God of justice? Well, because we understand that he is a good God. 
And as he enacts his justice, we get to rejoice because the world has been crushing and killing Christians for so long. And now we get to see that we are with God forever and that we last, we get to rejoice. But that is not true for people that get swept up into the ways of this world. Those who have not given their lives to Christ but are found worshiping the things of this world. In between verses 9 and 19, here's what you see. The repeated theme, weeping, wailing, mourning, over and over and over. The people that are indulged in the world are mourning. Why? Not because they love the prostitute of Babylon. Not because she made a great God. No, they are weeping and wailing and mourning because Babylon can no longer meet their needs. This entire life has been all about themselves. And now that their needs cannot be met, they are found weeping. They are found weeping. I want you to see two different things here. Verse 14 says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Like what the people's souls longed for is destroyed. It doesn't last. And that's why they're so upset because what their souls had longed for is gone. They didn't put their hope in Christ who lasts. They put their hope in the temporary things of this world. And then in the tail end here, verses 21 and 22, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Man, if you've been with us through this book of Revelation to see a constant repeated theme and thread of worship, like God's people worship, the harpists can continue, a new song is being sung. And then you get this, the worship of this world is silenced, completely brought to a hush because there's nothing left for them to worship. They become just like the idols that they worshiped. They are silent, lifeless, because it doesn't last. The worship of this world does not last. And I can't help but just get this picture from Genesis 2 and 3, where, where God is promising Adam and Eve. He's like, hey, look at the garden. Look at all I have for you. Look at all the flourishing. You can have dominion over everything. You can walk in perfect intimacy with me. Just don't do this one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing you cannot do. And at the beginning of Genesis 3, you see, here's what's true of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. It looks good to the eye. It's appealing. The allure is there to just say, hey, just come and eat. But what happens when you taste of the world and you understand that you bite what you were never meant to take part in? God is true on his word. He says, surely you will die. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They sacrificed all that God offered them, all the flourishing and intimacy for one bite, for one bite that didn't last. 
And so how do we overcome the allure of worldliness? You could say it this way. Overcome the allure of worldliness by living for what lasts. By living for what lasts. And there's two different pictures in the Gospel of John that I think are just helpful for us to understand this. The woman of Samaria, John 4, keeps coming to this well time and time again, middle of the day, heat, in her shame, because she has been so, so, so working for more water, more water, more water. It's a picture of her heart posture. We see that she had a lot of relational issues. She kept looking for belonging in earthly relationships. And Jesus actually says, hey, I'm not like a well. I have a spring to offer you. I have living water so that you would never thirst again. Do you want this water? And then you flip two pages, you get to John 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And these men cross a sea to come to Jesus and to say, hey, give us more bread. And he says this, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will not hunger anymore. There is this call and this invitation from the living God to say, stop settling for going back to the well or eating the bread that this world offers when you have a God that is meant to satisfy you. You have a God that is meant to satisfy you. And when we go back to this illustration of food, I think it's important for me when I sit down at the dinner table to think through two things in terms of what is the purpose of food? And this is a test that I've been using that's helpful for me. It has to pass a two-fold test. Number one, does it point me to God? I mean, the fact that food tastes good is a gift from God. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When we eat, we're actually meant to remember that God is good, that he satisfies in a way that food can't. And secondly, food is meant to be fuel for my body, for me to serve God. That is my ultimate purpose, for me to leverage my life, my body, my health to serve the kingdom. And so, does the taste point me to God and does the fuel help me serve God? If not, I should be mindful of what I'm eating. And when we look at the world, we're going to cross the bridge here. When we look at the world, the world was never meant to satisfy you. Here's what it was meant to do. Number one, show you your need for God. Show you your need for God. Even these good things leave you longing for more because guess what? You have a God-sized hole in your heart that only he can satisfy. And as you look at the brokenness of the news headlines, it's very clear, we need a savior. This world is designed for us to recognize our need for God. And second, we live in the world, but not of the world because God is wanting to invite us in to reach the world with him. That's crazy that God would choose to use us, broken people who have encountered a living God to say, hey, I want you to go and make disciples, to have compassion on the lost and to move towards them and to be a light in the darkness. So this world exists to show us our need for God and to live on mission with God, not to satisfy you, not for you to indulge in. And so... How do we apply a text like this? I have three application points. They're actually relatively simple, but they're challenging. The first is examine. 
examine your heart. Actually take an honest look and say, God, where have I been compromising when it comes to the world? Where have I been indulging in the things I shouldn't be indulging in? Where are things that have taken the throne of my heart? Instead of finding satisfaction in you, I found satisfaction in them. And then the charge is to repent, to turn away, to turn back to God. And maybe you've never read this before, but there is a minor prophet called Hosea. And God has given us this beautiful picture where he tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer, saying, she is going to commit adultery. And sure enough, Gomer does that. But what does Hosea do? He goes and he buys Gomer back. In church, that is what God has done for you. To marry an adulterous people who will turn their back on the God they love. And he will, he will say, I will not leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you in your shame. I'm going to go buy you back. And then he sent Christ to pay the price. That's what we're celebrating this upcoming Friday, Good Friday. That in your adulterous state, while you were an enemy of God, Christ came and he paid the price of his life to buy you back. And then we get to respond. We get to go back into covenant relationship with the God we love. So examine and repent. Second is this, consider fasting. Consider fasting. This is a spiritual discipline that is seen outlined very clearly in scripture that has been missing in the modern day church today, except for maybe a season of Lent. And even then the question is, are we fasting in a way that honors God? But this idea of getting rid of something in our lives to remind us that God is on the throne. Getting rid of something in our lives to remind us that God is on the throne. I've heard it said this way, if you can't rest from it, then you're a slave to it. Ouch. If you can't rest from it, you're a slave to it. And the thing is, I know the only thing I'm supposed to be a slave to is God himself a slave to Christ, a servant of Christ. And so if there's anything in your life that you feel like you cannot rest from it, here's a charge to say, fast. And do me a favor, don't tell the world about it. (laughs) That's a Babylon approach to say, hey, and I did this, by the way, when I was like 24 years old. Taking a break from social media, be back in a month. It's like, no, the focus is on you. You are Babylon there. Just take a break Tell your spouse behind closed doors and don't tell the world. Take a break and focus on God. And lastly, to memorize or meditate on scripture. To memorize or meditate on scripture. To find a passage that you need to cling to this week that speaks to the lies and the allure of the culture around you. The things that are competing for your attention and for your devotion to actually memorize a truth from God that says, no, this is what's actually true. God, you alone satisfy my soul. One that I would recommend, Psalm 63. Honestly, anywhere in there. Verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Man, what would happen if we would memorize or meditate on something like that and take it to heart? I think what's, what would happen, church, is that we would last this entire text about, hey, let's live for what lasts, guess what? We get to be a part of that by the grace of God. That Jesus, the conquering lamb, is going to bring with him those who are what? 
called his work, chosen his work, faithful his work in us and through us. But we need to respond to say, God, we want to be faithful to you because you've been faithful to us. That we would be a church that lasts. In this picture of a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, that we would stand out, but not in such a way that people look at us and say, wow, look how great that church is. Look how great Veritas Urbana is. No, that text in Matthew 5 says, no, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, who do they glorify? Your father who is in heaven, that we would be a church that glorifies God. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we look at a text like Revelation 17 and 18, and it is not hard for us to see our sin. It's not hard to see how we have been swept up into the allure of worldliness, whether that's a focus on self, sexual immorality, the love of money, these silent idols that have just been creeping onto the throne of our hearts. God, we repent. We turn back to you. We see that we are Gomer. We are the bride of Christ that has turned our back on the God who has loved us. But thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price. You moved towards us. You lived the life we couldn't and you died the death we deserve so that we can be reconciled to you. And God, I pray this week you would help our church be satisfied in this covenant relationship with you above anything that this world has to offer us. You alone are good. You alone are worthy to be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.